0: Hey there, my name is Vosh. I live stream on YouTube and Twitch, and sometimes I even upload the good bits. This is Previously Live. Can you hear me alright?
1: I hear you just fine, yes.
0: Uh, Fantastic, likewise here. It is a pleasure to have you on. Uh, We're live right now, Uh, 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 just, just to keep you informed. Uh, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. i uh, I appreciate it, and I love these kind of conversations. So thank you for uh, letting me in on one
0: of course. the the pleasure is mine entirely. Um, so you uh, w- you know we don't we don't normally have people um, with very serious jobs and very serious um, uh, I- histories on my platform, but it's it's a delight to be able to um to ask one of such questions. Could you introduce yourself for the audience?
1: certainly. Uh, My name is John Fonce, unlike my Zoom thing that has my wife's name up there. Um, I recently retired from the military on the 1st of January after 24 years. Um, In my career, uh, I was originally an infantry officer, um, and I served in the 82nd Airborne Division, um, and I was part of the initial uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2003, uh, also part of the first elections in 2005 in Mosul. Uh, after that, I joined the Special Forces uh, and I spent the rest of my career, the last 15 years or so, in the U.S. Special Forces. Um, I was assigned with 3rd Special Forces Group in Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Um, I did a couple months in Dushan Bay, Tajikistan, with uh, training some Tajiks. Um, and then I also uh, then finished my career, which is one reason why this conversation is such of interest to me. Uh, From 2017 until 2021, I was stationed in Mons, Belgium, um, at the NATO Special Operations Headquarters. Um, And my job was the J-7 Director of Exercises, Evaluations, and Assessments. So basically, my job there was to work with the NATO nations who were providing forces on behalf of the NATO Response Force to understand and be tested against the standards and the inoperability uh, checklists that uh, were provided by NATO in order to operate as a NATO force. Uh, And then a part of that also in 2019, we evaluated uh, Ukraine. Ukraine was the first nation to offer troops to the NATO response force, that force being that if NATO invoked Article 5, this would be the force that would respond. There's been a lot of nations that have, or non-NATO nations that have provided to NATO in the past and continue to do so. But this was the first time that they were actually part of the response force. Um, and so in that, I got a couple chances to go to Kyiv and work with uh, the Ukrainian Special Operations Command um, and watch them go from you know, Ukrainian standards to working toward NATO standards and eventually being certified as combat ready, ready to go and fully interoperable with uh, NATO forces, which of course was a great source of pride for them as it should be and as it was for my office as well. Um, and so in that, that's kind of where my experience was with the Ukrainians and then also just uh, serving as a key staff member for a three-star uh, US general at the NATO Special Operations Command. So there's a not so brief introduction, but I hope that's enough.
0: Well, um, ha- you have done many things, so it makes sense. Uh, yeah, you have um, I, I have not done anything in my life um, as much as you've done any of the things. Uh, that you just talked about. Uh, I have so many questions. First of all, and I know i already said this, but to reiterate, thank you very much for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Um, Wow. Okay. So I have a left-leaning political channel, Um, pretty left-leaning. And obviously, for reasons I'm sure you're familiar with, Um, The far left tends to be pretty critical of NATO as an institution, uh, along with the countries that make up NATO and the militaries that are employed by those countries. Um, As I've looked into this, I mean, this conflict kind of brought the world's eyes on NATO in addition to Ukraine and Russia. And as I look into it, I'm, well, I I suppose I'm interested a bit in the internal culture of, of, of NATO, I guess, to begin with, especially with regards to this recent conflict um when when you began bringing ukraine up to task or you know assisting in that process and um helping with the you know the potential article 5 task force i mean these are momentous possibilities here i mean especially if article 5 got invoked was there I have to wonder what the attitude was like on the ground for that. Was there like kind of a grim finality to it? Like this could be it or was it just operational? Like this is our job. We get it done. Sort of how do you approach that?
1: I think it was approached with a lot of optimism from NATO side. Um, You know, there's a great debate that goes on about how much NATO membership needs to happen. Is is bigger, always better. Um, and when you have an alliance that has stood for 50 some years without really having to go to war, which is its intent, it's a deterrence alliance, um, I think sometimes people just assume that war is better and people thought, great, another country, Ukraine has said they want to come to NATO, that's bigger for us, that's going to be, you know, uh, more of a, you know, more of a problem for Russia. And I think maybe we overlooked how much Russia detested uh that that it's not just like hey the bigger the better the more you fight to the party um and I definitely think there was a lot of optimism and I'm certain that a lot of those people that were very happy about it got worried when this thing started going down uh that you know maybe NATO would c- overcommit. There's definitely there's two sides, there's overcommitting and not not enough commitment from NATO. And both of those uh questions are great to have.
0: Yeah, I'm curious from your perspective. Um, and if you don't want to get too much into the politics of it, that's fine. But to your preference, how how large do you think NATO should be? What do you think NATO's end game should be in the modern world?
1: It's a great question, um, and I think it's changed and it evolved a little bit here in the past few months. Um, and we, you know, more of history has coming to light about you know when the when the Warsaw Pact broke up and the, when the wall came down. You know, it just assumed that bigger would be better. But what is the goal of NATO? I mean, the original goal of NATO, uh, Lord Ismay was the first uh, secretary general, and he had three, he said NATO existed for three reasons, to keep the Germans down, the Russians out, and the Americans in. Um, and I find it very interesting to, to think about that, because, well, one, the Germans, we don't need to keep down anymore. They're on our team.
0: Maybe one guy. Um, yes.
1: So it kind of... You know, now, according to that, which is you know several decades old, it's to keep the Russians out and keep the Americans in. But keep them out of what uh, is a great question because there was only a few members initially of NATO, and it was probably to protect those that couldn't protect themselves. You want an alliance that of all equally aligned you know, values in terms of democracy and how they treat people and the, the opportunities they give to those people, strong economic things to support themselves and provide to the defense, and that's a long winded answer to say, um, I'm not sure. (laughs) Uh, Again, I think that even when I first got there, I always thought more was better, but they have to be goal oriented for NATO for membership. Like what does NATO gain by getting someone in? Um, And you you can argue both ways. I mean, keeping Ukraine out gives you a little bit of a buffer. You know, strategically speaking, that might be more advantageous. Um, You know, by bringing them in, you just butted up your borders against the person that you said we're trying to keep out. You just brought them closer to the NATO borders. Um, And so I think both of those are very interesting. I would say that, in my opinion, if you're not going to let someone into NATO or you're saying this is, you know, we've, we've culminated maybe, it's still saying that if people want certain values, whether it's democracy or freedom, this is it something that we should you know, uh, be willing to stand up for for those that want to? I mean, I think that's what NATO did. So we need to be able to offer them something. We did offer some things to Ukraine, whether security assurances versus military assurances is another debate. Um, but I think you got to set those rules ahead of time. You cannot be talking about partnerships, in my opinion, after emergencies happen. I know a lot of people have said, I think Ukraine should be let in right away. Personally, I don't. I don't think that's how the alliance should carry itself. They make their decisions. It's a long process to get 30 nations to agree to something. Um, And so if it hasn't been agreed upon prior to an incursion like that, I don't think it should happen. I don't think it should be forced in or automatically rushed through the process. But you still have to make sure that, you know, those that want to be free can be free. What that entails, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, right now it seems to be pretty, uh, pretty possible that we're not going to lose all of Ukraine, but I mean, two days into it, I think a lot of people thought maybe differently how fast the mission moved. It kind of sputtered out, but um, if you would ask people the chances of them taking Kiev, I would have said, I don't think it's going to be that hard for them. I probably would have said, probably take them a month or less. Um, and here we are and they're not there. So uh, it's interesting.
0: Yeah, I think the entire world has been shocked by... Um russia's military unreadiness I, I i i had always assumed that eventually they would lose that ukrainian occupation would prove untenable in the long term something like that you know five ten years but i did i didn't think we'd be seeing didn't they recapture like 40 cities or something or 40 like townships in the past 24 hours or something like in the kiev region like the little outlying neighborhoods it's ridiculous
1: yes and several hundred thousand people you're talking about that now are no longer under russian control
0: that is Legitimately, unbelievable. <laughs> that is, it's, it's, it's difficult to believe. I don't think anyone would have expected that. Um, I didn't see anyone calling that a month and a half ago. Um, so you said NATO, um, uh, you talked about bringing freedom. Now, I'm wholly on Ukraine's side in this conflict here. So their occupation from Russia, preventing that, that is freedom as far as I'm concerned. But how do you feel about, and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, because it's a Russian talking point the equivocation with nato the idea that you know russia is an occupier and nato is an occupier and it's really just two equal and opposite forces fighting to control territory for real politic reasons you know just purely mathematical utilitarian occupation of territory
1: can you state the question one more time please oh
0: sure yeah in essence what distinguishes in, in your mind uh, what NATO does and what Russia does in terms of their respective um, occupations and how do you feel about the people who equate the two? Because I see a lot of that online. It's like central to Russian propaganda.
1: Okay. Um, well, of course, I guess my initial response would be is NATO is an alliance with 30 members. Russia is a country with membership of one. Um, and even their, uh, their allies that they do have might be giving them monetary support, but they're you're not even seeing. You know, they're not. They don't have a military alliance. They're, they're conducting a military operation. They don't have a military alliance. Um, so I think they would be hard sell to say that uh, they're on the same par of the ability, of the the, the uh, nature of an alliance that NATO has. And you choose, you ask to come into NATO. Uh, you know, Russia had their alliance, the Warsaw Pact, and when given the opportunity to leave they all promptly left.
0: <laughs> That's true. I I I I guess I have to wonder because it seems like Russia's attitude um towards its neighbors is really really different than a lot of it, other countries in the region, you know, that Russia is uniquely willing to invade or to bully, just very direct, you know, like like almost like um like a century old style. And with that being said, if Ukraine wins, you know, if Ukraine gets led into NATO or not. Like, how do you reconcile a world where Russia and NATO are at each other's doorsteps? I mean, they are in the Balkans anyway, right? It seems mm-hmm. like this is just an eternal powder keg. And, you know, give or, give or take this victory in Ukraine, it, it, it seems like an almost unsolvable problem, really, uh, diplomatically at least. A Baltic region, not Balkans. sorry.
1: Right. Um, I probably would say it is. I I don't have an answer for it, that's for sure. And I'm sure a lot of analysts are trying to figure out, like, what is, you know, what is, what do we want in 10 years between the relationship between Russia and NATO and non-NATO members? Um, I think people just want to be able to choose their own alliances, to choose who they do business with. But at the same time, uh, the kind of tying in economies or resources and sharing, I think, is a good step toward, hey, if we become reliant on one another, let's not go to war with each other. Um, so I don't think we should be, you know, doing the Heisman, you know, to Russia and saying, like, because you've been bad according to our standards, we're going to cut you all out of these things. I think they still have a real role to play in the economy and the trade inside Europe and and, and Asia, all the way across. So I, I I would be, let's see, hard for to say that uh, the post-Ukraine conflict is going to, uh, needs to be a, a world where we, we heavily punish Russia. I mean, okay. what, what is our endgame? We want sovereignty back. Are we willing to give up some of these Russian separatist areas? Um, and again, I think people have to think about, you know, if you try to expect Russia to go back out of there with absolutely nothing, that's going to be a tough sell for their leader. Um, you give them something... You know he has come in, he has taken it. We're trying to find an amicable resolution. Resolutions aren't always back to the status quo, so maybe these regions that go to them that have Russian separatists anyway, where fighting was taking place, they yes, we perhaps are playing into some propaganda. Maybe he gets to go back and say, Look, we are the merciful country that only took the Russian separatists and we let them have the rest of their country, and you know, we didn't want to. You know, NATO didn't want to get in a fight, so we decided to, to let it off. I mean, there's going to be propaganda on both sides, no matter how it ends. Um, but is it the most amicable solution? Is it because, is it going to, you know, one, stop the bloodshed, which is definitely a, a goal that's a daily thing that people are worried about, but it can't be the only goal. Strategically speaking, you have to think much farther. And I've heard many debates of, you know, on one hand, of course, we don't want any bloodshed. Of course not. That's not what we're after. We also don't ru- want Russia to be able to come in and bully their way to a sovereign country. But where do those two things meet? How much are you willing to let go? If there's a lot of bloodshed that takes place, but a little bit more means that Russia has to go back with its tail between its legs, and the whole world now knows that they're unable to take a large city like Kiev, which isn't the largest city or the hardest city to take, that might be a message to the whole world about what you can do in terms of bullying the next 10, 15, 20 years. And that's a, that's a tough question for policymakers to come to terms with. Um, again, on one side, you want to stop all the bloodshed right now, but I don't know. Is there is there a point that we are willing in terms of our national security and our long-term efforts to say this needs to go on for a little bit so that Russia can have can have its place on the world stage to show that it's inept to do anything further?
0: I agree with that. My My hope was, and I guess we're seeing that play out right now, which is delightful, is that who would it be the russian people the russian oligarchs you know just everyone who has any say whatsoever you know can can learn like this is just not an effective way of, of building back an empire you know um if they want to pursue aggressive trade relations or whatever i mean fine anything but this i have to wonder do you think that given how hyped up he is right now Zelensky would be willing to make a concession like that, like the the Donbass region, the territories controlled by separatists beforehand. Because right now, I mean asking, uh, you know, America to enforce a no-fly zone, uh, asking for more weapons so they can use it to retake territory. I, he's done a good job with the effort so far, don't get me wrong, but I, it wouldn't surprise me if he's like, you know, on that war fervor, like he wants to reclaim every square inch of Ukrainian territory. He never recognized after all, um, uh, Crimea's annexation, so maybe he th- like maybe he would try to go for that too
1: i I don't doubt his desire uh for that. I think when you look at his addressing of Congress you know asking for a no fly zone and, and 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 not being provided that those are kind of the overt messages of saying what we're willing to provide and uh how, how we kind of want this thing to to play out, which is a a resolution a quick resolution, and we're not going to be a part of it militarily um you know, as as of right now, and there'd be a lot that would have to change before I think we would get involved militarily. Um, countries go to war; it hasn't been a long time in Europe, but it does happen. And as long as there's not uh, massive uh, violations of anything in terms of chemical wars or nuclear wars, like you're probably not going to see any nation go in, uh, to include the U.S. And and I I do agree with it. I like the uh, uh, General Eisenhower uh, was had a mentor named Fox Connor, and he advised both Eisenhower and Marshall. And there's a quote that he always said that never go to war unless you have to never go to war alone and never go to war for, for long. Um, and I think that that's being adhered to here. Um, and maybe we haven't done that always in the past 20 years, right? Maybe we've violated that a little bit, a little bit. And maybe we're looking at that and learning from it. Um, and that would be a hope as well. Um, and trying to force, certain policies or things on like that. I don't know if we're good at that. I think the last 20 years kind of maybe said, maybe this isn't our, our, our coup de grace. This is not exactly what we're after. But standing behind someone and sticking to what we previously uh, agreed to, again, like those security assurances. But you know, after the emergency happens, I don't think we need to go back and relook Did we have the right policy in place. We knew this was a threat. We knew this was possible. And we stuck with those kind of uh, assurances to Ukraine for a reason. Um, and I, I I think Zelensky has done a wonderful job for sure. I think the Western world is seeing a a leader, um, in front of his people. And I think he's fully committed, but I think even a leader has to know that there are concessions that sometimes have to be made. We've had to do it. Other people have had to do it. What do you want? Is, is your really your end goal to make sure that the borders of Ukraine never change? That's going to have long-term problems. Um, Uh, but if your goal is to allow those Ukrainians that want to be Ukrainian and live freely, well, then can you accomplish that by giving up some of those territories? And if the answer is yes, then I guess my thought is, I think that's what you should do.
0: Gotcha. Um, I think um, with with regards to involvement in this conflict, I mean, there is, of course, something that distinguishes Russia from, you know, Libya, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, so on. Um, And that's the world's largest nuclear stockpile. Um, I have to wonder, because of course you, I mean, you being on the ground, you know way more than like the average person fear while scrolling through Twitter. Um, the possibility of nuclear involvement, is this something which has been taken seriously by uh, uh, like uh, operational command in, in NATO at all, in, in more so than normal? Or has this just been seen as more like um, Russian chest puffing? Mm.
1: Yeah, um, I, I'm definitely, like, I, yes, I have been in NATO, but uh, the people that talk about nuclear war uh, were, were above my pay grade, as we say. Mm-hmm. Um, these are some, some very, you know, smart people advising SAC here and advising uh, Jen Stoltenberg. Um, I think, my opinion only, is that it's, it's, it's chest-puffing. It's, it, he, he knows that that's not going to get him anywhere. That is when the world would see, in my opinion, uh, a need to act. Because I think the avoidance of nuclear war uh, on a country like that, that I don't think we would, we would tolerate it. Boy, where would that go? How would that end? That's dangerous. And he knows that. And so he can play that card up to the, you know, toe the line with it. Because you do have to make some responses. I mean, they activated some nuclear portions of their military. And we have to put some people on alert. It's just how it is. And it's really scary. It is. And it's not nothing to be laughed about or you know taken lightly. Um, but I'd like to think that if Putin has is, is miscalculated his, his, goal, his military capability, it's due mostly to the fact that he's probably not getting the advice and the candid feedback he needs, as opposed to being completely irrational.
0: Yeah, it seems likely that he's surrounded himself with yes-men. I know, of course, that he's, like, fired people from his cabinet in the recent past, and apparently he's very angry at how things have gone, so, uh, you know, I guess... Those are um,
1: probably the no-men that he got rid of. Yeah. Oh, right,
0: oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, my bad. He's making it even more yes-homogenous, uh, then. Uh, it's, it's, I guess that kind of, that's the irrationality of autocrats, I suppose. It's, you know, you multiply their irrationality times whatever feedback they're, you know selecting for from the cabinet they handpick to agree with them. Um oh well well actually um to to that then, uh with regards to the yes men, no men and their general failure in Ukraine, their military capabilities. I mean, it's been astonishing. It feels like every single day we get like some incredible new development in their incompetence in in, in the Ukrainian front. Um you said that you also didn't expect it to go down this way. Did did anybody? I, I mean with, with the intel you had, like how did this happen?
1: Yeah. Um I think <laughs> well when you start looking back at how many times Russia has done their exercises on the border where it ended with no war. Um you know we forget about how that trains people's mentality to not truly be ready perhaps not truly be prepared and there's been a lot of discussion of like a lot of these conscripts they had no idea they had no idea when they left their house to go on this exercise that they were going to go to war and they acted like that you know they maybe got rid of some of their supplies or their rations thinking that they were going home soon and then all of a sudden they're like hey go this way and i was like oh they don't really have the gas for that
0: i heard that they were they were selling gas out of their vehicles you know because you know like just some just some like petty officer would just like siphon off gas and just sell it off for a little extra money, which is, I'm pretty sure, I mean, in the United States, like you could never get away with that in, in like any decent military, right? That's like an exceptional level of yeah. graph.
1: Yeah. And I bet you it's just been over the many, many years of doing these exercises and coming back and doing these exercises. Yeah. They're like, Hey, let's make a little bit and things like that typically grow. And there's been even some discussion saying that when they created their humanitarian corridor for people to come to Russia, which we might shake our head at, was more of an avenue of them to resupply their troops with the kind of stuff they needed because that would allow them to travel down this humanitarian corridor. Um, and if that is true, you know, inside the intel worlds, they're passing that around to say, look, these people were completely caught off guard. So you know, maybe the uh, troops knew that they weren't qu- quite combat ready and some of the low level leaders, but it just wasn't making it to Moscow. And again, like how you, how you try to keep a tab on your combat readiness if you haven't gone to combat is difficult for any nation, and I think it just got away from them. And they just figured that they had enough might, um, and maybe guessed that you know NATO would not come in. They probably, I assume, they thought that, and I think it was a good a planning assumption on their part. NATO would not come in militarily, and they felt they just had the 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 time and the swiftness to get Kiev before the nation could rally. You know, countries could rally around providing. Uh, supplies and the sanctions to take effect, but when it stalled, I think it ran into a real big problem.
0: Do you, so. The the um, the truth that I've heard, or like I guess the the narrative that I've heard is that Russia has this colossal military, and the problem is, uh, even though they've only deployed a fraction of it, is that they can't afford to. And also that most of the vehicles that they had sort of like puffing up their national numbers are, I mean, they're just sitting in a depot somewhere, like their tracks don't function, you know, there's, they're inoperable, they haven't been maintained in decades, they're like post-Soviet. W- with regards to that, like, do you, think, it, it, do, you, it, do you think that's true? Like, it's just they're out, they, they don't have the money to maintain this war, and we're basically just seeing a tenth of their military because that's all they could ever afford to field at a time?
1: I think we're seeing the the true Russian military now. Um, to say that it's a tenth, I, I you know I I don't think so. I think they just uh, they didn't they weren't as big as maybe we all thought they were. It's a large country, um, and you know they probably have people that have been trained up or kind of in their country how they view it. Everyone's you know a soldier if it has to be, but those that have actually received really good training, like it just it hasn't happened. Um, and just going on an exercise to go to a border and drive your tanks around and then you sell off your gas at the end, that's not going to make you ready. I think they came to war with the Army that they, that they knew they had, and I just think they thought that it was going to be swift and they were going to be able to get some concessions quickly. But that convoy stalling, I think, was probably kept Putin up at night. He didn't, he didn't see that coming, and he might have known a little bit about his capabilities, but like that, I think, caught a lot of people off guard. Um, And that allowed the Ukrainians to turn the tide a little bit. Um, It's not a hard attack a sitting convoy. Um, While they have good tactics inside Ukraine, it doesn't take much um, when you're you're dealing with something like that. And that allowed them to gain some momentum, uh, really gain some uh, world stage of like, we can do this. And I think that's when we started to put more into it money, supplies to say, hey, if you can beat them on your own, um, this is going to be a wonderful, this is going to be the greatest event for our national security, for Russia to be beaten by Ukrainians alone. A quick end would be for NATO or America to be in there. But again, the long 15, 20-year term or, or long-term thinking is if they know they can't get past Ukraine, which, you know, I'm not saying Ukraine just should have been a small, you know, pothole along the way to Poland. Um, but I, I just, I really thought they, they were going to at least, be on the outskirts of Kiev, not take it. That's why I would have said back in January, and I would have been wrong. So, you know, take it from what it's worth the rest of the stuff I say. But uh, that's just kind of how I, I, I see it for for Putin. I think he just, that when that happened, and he had, you know, you, you lost the momentum. Uh, you lost the, you know, the, whatever he had going into that war, and all of a sudden that's when it turned.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a remarkable departure, I guess, from what I'd expected, because I keep up with a lot of, um... RT propaganda uh you know like what they've been putting out and this has been i mean this has been happening for decades really you know but um i've heard all this messaging since the war began it's been like um you know, well, Russia's only sending in their conscripts first. The real army is coming second. Of course, that's stupid. I don't think that's a real... Mi- like, you know, let's let 10,000 guys die, then we send in the real... Pr- I, I, don't, I don't think that's real. Um, Not an officer, though, so couldn't say. Um, No,
1: I would agree with you and think if you do this for the first time, you're going to invade a country for a long, long time, so that you're going to send the, 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 the C squad? No. You know that if you're going to send people in, you're sending your A squad because then you make people think the people I have in reserve are even better. No, I I think they put their best foot forward, and, and we saw how how good it was. Sorry, to interrupt.
0: Oh no, no, not at all. Yeah, the idea, the idea of like you know, I know how we'll secure this quick and easy victory on the road to Kiev. You know, we'll we'll suicide like all these VDV paratroopers, uh, and and lose uh, tanks to Ukrainian farmers, and only then will we show them. Right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it seems seems inadvisable. Um, so so you talked about like um how ukraine wouldn't just be a road bump on the way to poland though of course if they can't march their way through ukraine the idea of them marching through poland is, is is ludicrous but um your job was was literally i mean you're getting in part like getting ukraine on board and i have to wonder what does that entail like that sounds in retrospect like this must be very satisfying for you because now you're seeing essentially ukraine like holding off the second largest military on earth what did that what did that involve
1: i did it, you know and I will say, and I know that a lot of them from that battalion are engaged and I, you know, uh, I wish them the best and I love that they're standing so strong. Um, but it, when we walked out of there, I, I have to say that my, my report wasn't, I, we didn't give them an A plus, that's for sure. They had their struggles. They had their economic struggles. They had a big problem with the, the general staff was, in, you know, in my opinion, listening to people talk from the Ukrainian military, you had senior levels that were of the old Soviet mentality, and you had a younger generation that was much more adaptive and flexible because they were trying to do certain things. And, you know, you had to, this guy had to talk to that guy, had to talk to that guy, had to talk to that guy. It's this little chain of bureaucracy that was exactly, I mean, they were even line and block chart, their task org was still from their Soviet days. They hadn't even changed it yet because these senior leaders were like that. Uh, I mean, small, small things, like even in all their different sections and units, they always had a sniper. It was just one of the things that the Russians always had. And so they kept it there. And it's kind of like, why do you guys like, it? yeah, well, is we that, um, that's not film, but
0: Is that obsolete? Mentality. Sorry to interrupt. Is that, is that like yeah. an obsolete doctrine?
1: It absolutely is. But the seniors leaders were hanging on to it. Hmm. And I think it was just, that's what they knew. And then at the, at the lower level, what we were seeing is they were kind of. Again, the younger generation, much more flexible, much more adapted, grew up in a different Ukraine. Um, and they just kind of blew it off. Like, yeah, we don't worry about that. That's the old mentality. It'll be gone in a few years um, when our generals are no longer serving. Um, but again, it wasn't an A-plus coming out of there. Uh, but they definitely had the drive. Uh, but they had a lot of problems in terms of like coming, coming into NATO or putting forces out, which had a lot of eyes on. The bureaucracy process was stifling. But on the ground, when you're chasing tanks, there's no generals there to tell you how to do it. And these guys are on the ground making decisions, learning from their actions, getting smarter for what the Russians are doing. And as time goes on, they're just getting stronger.
0: That is really interesting. When I hear like um, Soviet mentality, I mean, I was born after the Soviet Union fell. So to me, when I think of that, you know, I think of like, it, it conjures in my mind the same image of like World War II, like Panzerfausts and like, you know, Sherman tanks rolling over hills in France. It's, it's very antiquated. But well, no, a lot of those guys legitimately would have been in the Soviet Union. Um, you know, um, uh, when. So you talk about the bureaucracy um, being stifling there. I think I see that younger energy. I think in, in a way Zelensky represents that given his use of social media. He's obviously a really young guy. Um, I, I guess he would embody that in my mind, I think that the older, like the older brass, the bureaucracy, were they um, cooperative with NATO or was there this lingering antagonism?
1: They were cooperative, but I didn't interact with senior level uh, leaders much. I mean, I had a, a sit down with the commander of the Ukrainian special forces as an intro um, and he was, of course, extremely thankful for everything we were doing. He did stop by frequently to say thanks. Um, and so I, I think he genuinely appreciated it. But I, I just think that he didn't come and do a lot of the exercises or the, you know, the decision process. Again, you want to stay away from the lower level commander. You want to give him some space. But I also think my personal opinion, he just he wasn't comfortable with it. Um, it was a doctrine he never learned. It was tactics that he never learned. Uh, there was a lot of fast-moving things that were on the battlefield, whether it's communications, demolition, or just weapons and tactics. that It wasn't what he grew up with. And now his job was to help the political appetite in Ukraine get on board with a military aspect, joining this alliance, Um and it's difficult because a lot of times when you wear a uniform like I did, you think of NATO as a military alliance. But it's a political body. And it's very, it's very apparent, it is. And like when we would do our big exercises where we'd certify this response force, the first person to speak was the uh, uh the, Poland, the political advisor. That's who got the first hop in the, in the microphone because it was a political organization. And the, and the four-star general, he got to go second. Um, and it wasn't a, a, an attempt to try to, you know jockey for position. It's just how this body and this organization works. They are a political entity. They have a military means for when negotiations fail or an article five is invoked. But until then, they're just a readiness thing. They're just there for deterrence. Everything else is supposed to be on the political uh, you know diplomats talking to one another. And I think you know, trying to come back to the question, like the the senior levels of the Ukraine military, they just didn't, that wasn't ground that they were comfortable with. So they wanted to just make sure that their people were supported um, and that, you know, they stayed in line with the proper party line that we're happy, we want to join NATO, we are excited. But, um, you know, I don't know if on a senior level it was it was all there. They kind of probably saw it as a distraction.
0: Gotcha. That is, that is really interesting to me. It would make sense, of course. Um, you know, obviously a military alliance is going to be met with, mutual political obligations because you would never want a defensive alliance with like an irrational country you'd want to make sure they're being sort of constrained in the way that most modern democracies are in terms of their foreign engagement um with regards to so you were talking about like operational um uh, uh um doctrines and their uh, um being obsolete with some of these soviet style um like older officers the top brass what we're seeing right now in ukraine What's your insight into the Russians getting bogged down? Um, because we we see, obviously, like there's some obvious stuff, like fuel running out. I know that Ukraine is really marshy, so you have to stick to roads. Um, I know there's low morale on the conscript side, but I, I'm willing to bet, you know, we see these victories from afar, but I, I imagine that what's happening right now on the part of Ukraine's special defense it, it is a product of like an incredibly deliberate strategy that's panning out relatively well. And I, I'm, I guess I want to know, as somebody who would have had a hand, at least in part, in imbuing that, um, what, what is, what's going on outside of Russian incompetence?
1: Uh, I think what you said that is the biggest part is morale. I mean, why, why does someone join the military? You probably have a sense of pride in your country. You're willing to defend it. Um, I don't know if the reasons that myself and many others that I know joined the American military were the same reasons that the Russian conscripts are in their position. So I think when you start from a different base of motivation and have a different why, you're going to have a different how. Um, and they don't have any probably real desire to take all of that. Maybe they want those Russian, uh, separatists to be part of their country if they've learned about it or or read about it. Maybe they think, yes, these people want to be with us. Uh, There are some people that should be able to come here. um, And they also got to come with their land. I don't know. They can't just leave and go to Russia. Um, But I don't think the morale is there. It's kind of like, you know, when you've watched any kind of sporting event where the team is completely number one in the country and the underdog, you know, they come out and they're down 20 points. But then all of a sudden so you know they start hitting the three-pointers and like you see that you can see the look on their faces. The bench is not getting out of their seats, the players are hanging their heads, they're just kind of like feeling defeated. And they probably were told very early on that they were going to just march through this place and whatever, they're gonna be home, they're gonna be home by April. Well, you know, or whatever they were told. Um, and probably what they were told is not panning out. And the more you tell your people, you tell your soldiers something, and you can't deliver your morale is going to go way down. And the Ukrainians are just, they're, they're driving up and they're seeing some of these things. And they're, they're, you know, they're able to talk to people when, that, when a city goes back into Ukrainian control. They know it. And that, that, that gets them fired up.
0: It seems like um, so often when military affairs get discussed, at least in my experience, obviously I have no military experience, but just like generally, you know, people talk about it in terms of... Um, measurable empirics you know uh, uh national budgets you know um uh, uh like what weapons people have how many of those weapons people have stuff like that but it seems like so often conflicts are determined in large part by like what you've said morale you know um in afghanistan for example uh the taliban pretty much instantly overwhelmed the um you know the defense forces there despite their superior numbers and um you know military equipment um in ukraine of course they're fighting a losing battle and somehow pulling out on top uh even in vietnam right you know vietnam's national will to w- resist us contributed to them being able to fight despite their massive casualties but it's really hard to to put a number on that um yeah it, it's 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 I, I don't even know how you would it seems like as As time goes on, you know, we try to overcome this with more advanced weaponry. But at the end of the day, like we're just countries are just very naturally resistant to being invaded. like the 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 lines in the sand have been more or less drawn. I would hope that would mean there would be less warfare in the future because it seems like it's getting harder and harder. Anti-tank weaponry is getting cheaper. Tanks are getting more expensive. It just seems like the math is winning out in favor of the occupied in favor of the occupier.
1: In favor
0: of the occupier? Uh, sorry, in favor of the occupied instead of the occupier. My bad. I talked for too long. My sentence drew, drew on.
1: <laughs> no, good. Because uh, you know, I, would, I would agree with that uh, very much. And again, it's kind of, you know, what does someone have to win or lose? You know, the Ukrainian people, they have so much to lose. Um, and oh, and I was going to say, I, I thought earlier, you know, uh, for your audience, if they are interested in Ukraine and this, obviously they're here, they're listening. Um, they wouldn't have stayed out with me that long if it wasn't something they cared about if they haven't seen the documentary "Winter on fire it's a really good one it's only an hour and a half totally worth your 90 minutes um and it talks about you know when yanukovych was pulling out of the eu deal um with uh putin at the same time and the resulting effect was the government kind of shut down and the people were upset and they went to the streets and they went to maidan square and they surrounded it and it was like les miserables I mean, they occupied that area and they said, we want to have this happen. And eventually they were able to get Yanukovych to fly out on a late night helicopter and go into Russia. Um, They had a strong why. They had a strong will. They had a lot to lose. And when you have a lot to lose, you're willing to put a lot on the line. What does the conscript have to lose? In fact, the most he has to gain is also a quick resolution. So how hard is he fighting? I don't know.
0: And 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 just today, I think Ukraine offered to essentially buy out defectors from Russia. Like if they bring a tank with them, to you know, to 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 give to the, they'll be like, here's half a million or something, which is incredibly what? funny. It's a very funny what? conflict in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, they said like a million dollars for a warship, which if they get even a single warship from that, that's that would be ridiculous. But you know, um, oh, uh, uh, speaking about um occupiers, um. Many people have criticized NATO uh, for being overly U.S. driven, despite it being a mostly European theater, you know, obviously during its creation. And since then, it's mostly been like a European affair. But America is, of course, the, the biggest, strongest country in NATO. Do you think there is an undue or disproportionate influence on the part of America? Or do you think this is mostly made up?
1: Undue influence. I guess you'd have to really define who gets to have their due. And in a lot of cases, especially in alliance, you know, if you write the check, you, you get to pick the menu. Um, and again, if NATO was founded on the idea of like keeping America in, they didn't, keep, they didn't say keep America and then country B and C and D. Um, the idea was that our ability to project such power from across the way, while also being quite protected due to our geography, um, we were a vital member in European security. And in the end, in my opinion, European security is part of our national security now you can argue it i, I, don't, I don't say you can't can because like hey how, how much is this you know affecting the security of the average person myself now as you know a retired military guy you know it's not but you know as a world leader i think you have world responsibilities i really do and that's one reason why i enjoyed serving and that's one reason why i enjoyed you know sometimes even if it was just our best efforts or our best intentions what we've tried to do in our history um, and no, we're not, not going to get it right. And no, we didn't get it right all the time. But if you think that you believe strongly in your values and that it should be something that people should want, to, should have if they want it, then you should be able to exert it a little bit. And if you want to exert it, then you pay the price. And if it's a dollar amount to make some decisions or to have some key leader positions, that's what you do. And I think it's been quite clear. They kind of outline it. We've got a whole sort of charts and, and memorandums and policies about who gets what position based on what you pay. So. It's as transparent as you can be. We pay the money, we get to have the, uh, the decision making. Should we be making that many decisions for Europe? I think you could argue very well, no, you we shouldn't. And how do we walk ourselves out of that? I don't know, are we seeing that a little bit now? We're seeing some other nations providing some resources and some equipment, allowing staging for a lot of things outside near the border. So I don't think it's clear, it's just a US response here. I think NATO is doing something. Um, you can, you can argue whether it's enough or not. That, that, that's good to have. That kind of tension in that main subject, are we doing enough, is what's going to be able to make the alliance better um, and listening to one another. And America just needs to have a role. And, and, we, and again, we don't create things after it. So we were the decision makers on a lot of things because we wrote the checks ahead of time. And I think that's just got to keep going as it is for now. In the future, if we want to, you know, give up some positions, I would be in favor of that. I would like to see.
0: uh, Do you feel positively then about Germany increasing their defense spending? It seems like they might be positioning themselves to be an arbiter of, uh, you know, um, regional defense. Uh, Maybe that could take some of the burden off America in terms of making that region be or at least feel safe.
1: Absolutely. I, I, I would be in favor of that. I mean, there's, uh, there's many means that are non-military to help somebody else uh, stand up. And we can provide direct support to Germany in, in many ways. But if we could work ourselves out of the, not the job, but of the perception, which is a reality, that we're driving a lot of the decisions, I think that strengthens the alliance. I think the more that we can get it in European, taking on European security... I think that's great. I don't want to have be out of it or anything like that. I want to be a part of it. I want to say that you know if someone comes into your territory that we stand behind you, as long as they're in line with our values. And you know, losing a country like that is, a, in my opinion, a downturn for our national security, not directly. It's hard, it, I understand it's hard to make that line. And I don't disagree with someone who really questions it. I think it's a good question, but when people get to live freely, we all prosper. And that's what our security is for.
0: I fully agree. You said earlier that you felt one of the more optimistic directions things could go with Russia is a kind of trade interdependence, you know. Maybe they don't become a liberal democracy, okay, but if they're trading robustly with us and us with them, they're at least disincentivized from engaging in aggression against us. I feel positively about that um, in a lot of conflicts around the world. I guess I'd hope that'd be like a strong uh, deterrent against military aggression. and. I was hoping, see, given this is the way things seem to be going at the moment, um, at least in some parts of the world, I feel like, and I was wondering how you felt about this, we could probably do to massively cut, uh, and by us, I mean America, our military budget. Um, it, this isn't a national defense thing in a direct sense. Obviously, we're not going to be attacked directly. That's not really feasible, I, I, I don't think. Not with our nuclear stockpile, our location, whatever. But... It seems as though America occupies the position of, like, world police in a lot of people's minds. And as a product of that, you know, 1.3 billion people in Europe get to enjoy national budgets undeterred by regional investment in defense spending because we pick up the bill on a lot of that. And I think, uh, you know, spending shared in that respect might incentivize everyone to re-evaluate how much money we spend on, on, on national defense. A lot of it does seem a little bit um, excessive, especially from us. I mean, no one's going to attack England. No one's going to attack France. They could at least be tuned down, I think.
1: I will definitely say, and it's my opinion, only obviously, I mm-hmm. agree with you. Um, you know, I'm a big Eisenhower fan. And if, no one, if people have not listened to his farewell address about the military-industrial complex, please take some time and do that. That's another wonderful thing on this very topic you're talking about. Um, And uh, what an interesting thing, and I'm gonna say it and I hope I can back it up, but I, I was looking at this and if I get it wrong, I apologize. But from 2014 to 2021, every nation in NATO has increased their common funding spending as a percentage of their GDP, except America. We are the only one who has gone down. And I I have that chart, if I'm saying it correctly, that it's definitely, it was the only, we're the only country from 2014 to 2021 that has decreased as a percentage of their GDP. So we're going in the right direction, but we also were spending so much early on that there was a lot happening. So I think we're trending in it, but it may be in a turtle's fashion. We are, we are going this race very slowly. Um, But uh, I think that is something we need to do. And it needs to be goal oriented. We're going to go down to this much spending because we feel that you guys, whatever we're talking about, guys and gals, these countries can hit these benchmarks. And it has to be deliberate like that.
0: I would hope so, especially since my hope would be, you know, they rely on us, the the, the countries of NATO. And if we all were to meet those expectations, the the hope would be we could collectively decide maybe they're a bit excessive um i obviously recognize the need for a strong national defense what we're seeing in ukraine right now makes me think like there are few militaries that can match russia's even after what we've seen of them in the past um you know month and a half like there's still a relatively strong military and ukraine was able to hold them off with of course significant you know arms provided by um yeah. by nato forces when i look at that i think like with with things being so tilted in favor of the of the occupied it really seems like for countries that are in nato you know poland france us whatever else like nukes pretty much solve the question no invasion against us could ever bear fruit it would be impossible our military couldn't invade our country it's it, it were you know what i mean like if we could clone the us and like it's just it's so stacked um and and in a way that's really great because it's like this decreases the likelihood of like world conflict so much because nobody can really win um and on the other hand it makes me really worried because it makes me feel like the amount we spend on our military the world broadly isn't proportional to the imagined need for it it's like two unrelated factors just some secondary expenditure that just goes up no matter what
1: yeah i i agree with you i'm a a former military guy myself but i mean you know again the, the goal should not just always be bigger and better uh, and spend more is what the result of that mentality is. Um, I would love to see all that money to go towards some of the things that we have going on in our country. We want the freedom so that we can make these decisions. And some of the things need money to help You know, those that are less fortunate than, than people like myself that live inside my own country. I, I do want to take care of them. I do think we have an obligation. And it's a tough balance. Don't get me wrong. I'm not the guy for it. Um, I just know that when I see just how much superiority we have while well, we have another awesome alliance ready to come to our uh, you know come to our defense if we were to be invaded or to really be threatened. And I have no doubt that we really were our 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 sovereignty was threatened. I have no doubt that NATO would be there. Yep, it might take them a little while. Maybe they're not so quick. Maybe the response force might not be so responsive. I understand that those critiques are welcomed and you know, I understand the, the thought process behind it. I do. It's a tough thing to make decisions amongst many countries. But with that, with that in your corner, when you have that strong of an alliance in your corner, who, who do we fear? Who are, who are we worried about? And who do we need the next biggest, best generation of, of aircraft and, 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 and uh, you know, ships and things like that? I think it's a wonderful thing to have. And I think the American people, if they feel that way, should, should look into that, get smart on that and talk to their representatives on it because you know, we should have, you know, I, say, I say goal-oriented stuff for them coming down. We should also have goal-oriented stuff for us. If we need to spend that much more money, what goal are we yet to achieve? I mean, the superiority we have, I think is, I, is there a limit? Is there a limit so we can start saying, all right, we're gonna start decreasing. We're starting, you know, making life in, in America better because dang it, this is what we, this is what people in World War II fought for to make sure that this doesn't come into our area. And that's what we try to wage a lot of other wars for, or at least the mentality was, because that is the mentality that should prevail. And if we have the opportunity now to do it, to put some more money back inside our borders, I, be, I don't think we're short on social issues and needs that, that could be helped by decreasing. And I'm not saying I'm anti-military, like I said, for 24 years. Oh, I know yeah. how that must sound. I can only imagine how I might sound to some people and say, well, that's not very supportive. But- you know you want to work your way out of having to have such superiority you yep. want to work your way out out of the need to have an aircraft carrier that can on itself destroy like half the countries in the world because it's just that powerful we don't need it what do we need let's get that and let's uh but it's tough because then if something could happen three years down the line then i'm completely wrong because we didn't keep up on the technology and the research and development
0: no but i think you're right If anything, I think this indicates it, right? Like right now, in terms of our um, military investment, I feel like we're getting ready for an alien invasion. I mean, like, what, what what else is going to, you know, like at at the moment, at least, you know, I know that um, I know China's got a strong military and all, but and they're probably not as puffed up as Russia is, but still, like, compared to us, compared to NATO, and I think if anything, the the conflict has shown us it seems like the real victory here for the West against Russia. Has been an economic and political one not a military one obviously ukraine has benefited from the supplies they've been given but it's not like they have the full fleet of our vastly superior like what javelins are from like the 1990s aren't they or, or earlier like they're not they're not cutting edge they're just good um we it, what, what it's really been is like the rest of the world coming together politically like the un resolutions like you know having the money to send excess uh, equipment over. And in that respect, you know, I feel like the best national defense we can get for America at this point is, you know, supporting our ailing infrastructure, making sure that we have a strong quality of life, making sure that our economy and our investment in our economy is top notch, because that seems like the best way to shield ourselves from real... um, real military threats to make it so that any attack against the U S would collapse the world economy. Anyway, it seems like a pretty good, that's like an economic mutually assured destruction. You know, like how countries around the world have trillions of U S debt held in U S dollars, like all over, like who would want our dollar to collapse? China doesn't. That's for sure. Like their, their economy would collapse right after like, it'd be, it'd be horrible for them. Sorry. I'm, I'm rambling. I'm rambling, but no, I just, I, I dream it. of a better world. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, I think, you know, uh, on that, subject sometimes what people will say in terms of spreading democracy is kind of how we feel like we're just people being able to make their choices you can do that through military means you can spread it through military means you can spread it through non-military means you can defend it where it exists with military means you can you know defend it where it exists with non-military means but there's a fifth one that sometimes isn't always mentioned in that conversation and perhaps the best way to spread democracy is to have a really good one yourself and to be a darn good model of one and So we should perhaps pull off the grade sheet and think, how are we doing right now on being able to make sure that everyone has that pursuit of happiness, those opportunities and things like that. And let's 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 grade ourselves really hard on that. So um, and I think there can be a lot that can be gained for. And if you have an alliance, you have such a strong European alliance, which we have, what for? So hopefully draw back. Like I said, I'll find you the chart and i'll send it to you to make oh. sure i'm correct you can fact check me
0: absolutely uh, please
1: because i think that's very important because if i've said something wrong then i really want to make sure you hopefully you come back to your audience and let them know if i'm, I'm wrong on that but i want to show it to you and it's, we're like the only country that's gone down so again in a thin slice of it it's not happening fast enough but if that's the way we're trajectory the directory is going then all right let's do it
0: it's the shining city on the hill model right you know it's not as though america's perfect i criticize it every day for my job actually. Um, but you know, when when the Ukrainian people are looking at like their options, right? Like where do they want to align? We saw this with the Euromaidan, right? Like when they're when Yanukovych just after promising to be with the EU, just decided to have an exclusionary trade deal with Russia. They can take a look at what's going on in Russia. I can they can take a look at what's going on in the EU. And I think that ch- the choice there is pretty straightforward. And that's only a decision they can make easily because we've invested more in our people you know not like the like the the entire russian economy got carved up by oligarchs not to say we don't have some of that ourselves you know but they're in a league of their own (laughs) they 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 outdo us we 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 envy them in terms of their oligarchy um uh they um anyway i just think we paint a better model and i um yeah i don't know i feel like that's a good kind of patriotism it feels like you said like eisenhower like a more um respectable form of patriotism, I think, than a lot of the chest beating a lot of people do. You know, like, like Congress buying more tanks for the military when the military was asking, like, like don't we have enough tanks at the moment? I, I remember that from a couple years ago. It's just excessive stuff like that.
1: Yeah. No, I think, um, I think in order to think critically, sometimes you have to criticize. And that's okay. If you do it with the intent of, let's, let's bring this out from under the table and put it on the table and have a frank discussion about it, um, I think that's exactly what needs to happen. Um, and people should be able to defend it, you know, even if you're being critical of it. And then we listen to their side and then we see if we can't understand what, what they feel in terms of, hey, we're doing what we need to, or we're at least going in the right direction and it might not be as fast as you want. But trying to understand the vision of, you know, uh, is difficult, especially in, in a country where you know that your head leader is only going to be in for at most eight years, which is a great thing. But it also can be di- difficult when you're trying to do a 30 year vision when you have sometimes different mentalities sitting in the office, and that yeah. that back and forth again, I think is a happy tension. I think it can be a happy tension, and I think many times in our history it has. Um, and uh, I think if we stick to that and stick to being critical thinkers and being willing to criticize if we have to, but then to also do it with the effect of or the intent of making things better for what our values are in this country, I'm all for it. So one hundred percent.
0: I, I didn't ask you beforehand how much, um, how much time you had, but if you still have time to talk, I have some more questions. I, I don't know how, how busy your day is. Um,
1: I, have, I have some more time. Sure, let's do a few more.
0: Sweet. Okay. Um, so with regards to um, the, I think it's called the Budapest Accords. I'm forgetting right now. My head is blanking. Uh, where uh, Ukraine agreed to give up the nuclear weapons station there after the Soviet Union fell. And re- so there's been some discussion. Now, Ukraine at the moment seems like they're indicating that they don't want to join NATO after this is all settled. At least that, that could just be like a peace talk deal. I, I don't really know how that'll go. Either way, they've proven invading them isn't going to work out well for Russia, so hmm. um, but how do you feel about them pursuing potential nuclear rearmament if they stay out of NATO uh, after this is all done?
1: Well, the question would be why if they? Are able to stand against an enemy like that without it and we are willing to support I don't think that we personally I don't think that we should support that kind of endeavor. I don't think that's going to solve problems in our geopolitical sphere. I think it'll only exacerbate it by making you know people more skeptical of what you will do with it that's, that's the, the, the big question right you know if, if, do you want nuclear arms and so are you willing to use them? Uh, Eisenhower, again, he's one of my favorite individuals ever um, he was uh, reportedly known for saying that he, someone gave us an advice and said, think long and hard about whether you will or will not use nuclear weapons and then tell nobody, and apparently that's kind of how his approach to it, it's that dangerous of a topic that you can't give any sway one way or the other and who knows what General Eisenhower came to a conclusion on those things, as far as I know, he never told anyone his thoughts um, but that's how it tells you how dangerous those things are Um, and so to, to, to try to do that, that requires a lot of backing and support and protection. And I think it would just be better spent saying that, you know, we're going to provide things to you to make sure that you can, you have what you need to fight off the enemy. And clearly they, they are able to do a lot of that, not fully, they haven't been able to repel them, but if they're not doing it with, uh, you know, the, the very best of the equipment that is out there trying to jump over that step rather than to try to up their military, up their equipment, up their doctrine, trying to jump all the way to nuclear, I think, um, I don't see where that, that helps the tension on Russia. That, 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 I mean, you have to, sometimes it's hard, but intel analysts that are, are really good, this is what they do. They sit in a room, they're both in the same country, they're both in the same alliance, and someone we call it red-hatted in the military you put on the hat of the enemy on, on maps the enemy always uh, a red icon versus a friendly is a blue so you call it red hatting like if i have my red hat on what am i thinking and what am i doing because we should we should really consider how russia would view that if we support that if we even just support it in in word not even in money not even in action just supporting it in word is kind of i mean at some point you got to understand that there are you know we're broken the bear and for what reason I mean, does Ukraine need it? Does it need it to be secure? What's the end goal? And if the answer is no, it's just to tell Russia that now you can't mess with us. Uh, and look, we can have what you have. That's a race. And that's a race to the bottom, I think. And I, I'm afraid someone will win.
0: Okay. I, th- I think I completely agree with that. Um, there, are, there are people who say that nuclear pl- uh, proliferation has generally been a force for world peace of course because it disincentivizes the attacks on other nuclear countries and sometimes the way they talk about it you know they act as though like England and France would still be fighting across the channel if it weren't for them both having nuclear no I I don't think that's the case but I have to wonder do you do you think they've contributed positively to world peace or do you think most of the relative peace we've seen would have happened anyway and they're just like an extra threat on top of that
1: that's a good question. and I, I, I like putting out my, my opinions on things uh, because I think that's something you should do on a show like this. And I, I caveat it with the fact that I have no business uh, making such an opinion, but uh, we still have them anyway. Um, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's had the effect that we think it has. Maybe early on in the Cold War to have that superiority. I think that it has only lost its luster over time. Um, and so I think it's trending in the wrong direction. Well, I'm sorry, it's trending in the direction of it's not what's keeping the peace. So we need to be a little bit more careful about uh, reversing, reversing that effect. I think we're, we're downtrending. And I think any kind of buildup is just going to, you know, it's just going to rattle some sabers and really make some people mad.
0: I, I have to say that what's happened in Ukraine to me is like a very preferable model. The idea of if if a country's invaded by a much larger, much more dangerous country unjustly, you know, it would be the world uniting behind them with like traditional conventional arms rather than like this massive interlinking like nuclear deterrent system where one, you know, like one rocket fired across a border can lead to a chain reaction that sets off the end of the world or something. That, I, I, to me, I guess uh, the Ukraine situation is obviously horrible. I don't mean to make light of it, but in many ways, I guess it's given me a feeling of optimism about the potential future of you know, political and military alliance, at least in, in Eastern Europe. I, I, I would hope we could carry that energy forward uh, uh, with time.
1: Yep. I, 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 I share those sentiments with you.
0: I'm happy to hear that, especially from a person of your, um, oh, well, of your, of your former rank and experience. I mean, like that it's, um, because so much of, I, this is the first time that I've ever covered a war on my channel, you know, and, uh, seeing this unfold live, it's been so, I guess, ridiculous. Um, and so uh, like comedically absurd and horrifying at the same time. It's, um, it's really interesting to hear, I guess some of my concerns and interests reflected in a person with like a thousand times as much knowledge as me. Um, I guess uh, it, it makes me feel like uh, there's, there's more synchronicity between like the public and, and the brass uh, than I thought there would be in terms of like approaching situations like this.
1: Yeah.
0: Just a feeling of optimism. I, um, I really appreciate you coming on. I really can't say it enough.
1: Thanks. I, I, I just, I love this uh this forum um and i hope that the listeners got something out of it um i'm sure i said things that they maybe agreed with and uh, i'm quite certain i said things that they didn't agree with but uh know that it's just uh my opinion and i want nothing more than peace uh you know no one wishes for peace more than soldiers and i really do believe that um and it's it's not an easy solution and i i applaud our leaders in the military and on the political realm, of this, I think they're standing strong, and I know it's on their minds. And I, I really do. I think they're they are really putting in a lot of effort to try to figure out how to shape this the best way we can. Um, I uh, so.
0: hope for peace too. Oh, and and, and a final one um, asked from a person in my chat who introduced themselves as the person who introduced this uh, budding uh, budding bromance in their in their words. Um, may I humbly suggest you ask him to you what the best book you've read this year is and also to give you a hint that they're the person who's asking. Just yes. doing as they ask. Uh,
1: so this person, and, and I, I think it's a great uh, example of how uh, you know, good tension leads to great discussion. Um, she has a book, uh, Your Right to Organic Tomatoes and Other Things Your Google Search Got Wrong. Um, and this is a great uh, little uh, manifesto that she put together and it's worth reading. Um, and yeah, she takes a very, very hard opinion on it. And I can say that that's, you know, her beliefs and that's good. And, but when I talk to her about it, you know, we talk as, as just two individuals that have been friends 20 years, more than 20 years, good Lord. Um, 25 years, 26 years. Um, so yeah, so like, you know, it's, it's, it's true that, you know, you can be different of opinions, but you have something to learn. And I used to always say, I, I worked at West Point in charge of some of the cadets that were going to be later officers uh, 10 years ago. And I said, hey, when you have a debate, your goal should be to lose. Because if you lose, you learn something. If every debate you enter, you keep winning. You need to find a new circle to debate in, man, because you're just not growing. Um, and she's definitely stretched my, uh, my, uh, my thought process on a lot of things um, in terms of how I get my values and how my beliefs are shaped. And so you're right to organic tomatoes in this time and what's still going on in this country in these past few years um will make you uh scratch your head on some things whether you're on whatever side um but it will bring to light some discussions that that can be had um you might you probably can do with a little little less f-bombs than she might use but that's okay if that's who you are be who you are and be a good one
0: i've been known to use a few of them myself um i i'll add it to the list Thank you so much for coming on, sir. It has been a tremendous pleasure, and I hope you have a wonderful day.
1: Thanks. Have a great weekend, and thank you so much again. This has been very enjoyable, and I hope your audience enjoyed it as well.
0: I know they did. Be well.
1: Thanks. Have a good weekend.
0: That was nice. I feel um, I feel very professional in my anime T-shirt, talking with um, a special operations officer for NATO, former special operator. Right? Yeah. Um, that was good. Yeah. I've I've said this um I've said this before but I feel like um I've said this before but I feel like um a lot of people don't understand that military and like vets are a totally different animal from like the people who support the military in like politics, you know what I mean? Like the the super ultra pro military like chest thumping patriot republicans are just so on another, they don't care. It's just, like, uh, them having, like, no-bid contracts with, like, Raytheon or some shit. Like, it's just a money thing for them, right? Like, I'm pretty sure, like, Bernie Sanders had a ton of support in the military. Like, every time I talk to, like, veterans or whatever, not every single time, but, like, I've talked to a good number of vets, they tend to be, like, pretty reasonable people, you know? Like, like he said, like, nobody wants peace more than soldiers, you know? Like, I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm not, I like, I like, legit, if you, like, if you, um, if you, uh, uh um, listen to, like, the US, like U.S. military brass talk, like, the generals or whatever, like, w- d- during, um, testimonies or, like, dep- 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 depositions or whatever, um, in the congressional records, I feel like our top military officers are consistently more rational sounding than a lot of our politicians. Because, especially like Republicans, because Republicans get into office by screaming the loudest, stupidest shit they can, and military officers get to where they are, not exclusively through competence, obviously it's not some perfect meritocracy, but I don't think it, it's subject to the same degree of like, like horse, like bullshitting that, you know, like you, you can, you can get into power as a, as a politician with. It's, it, I'm not saying it's a meritocracy, just that it's more meritocratic, I think, um, uh, than, um. Than like getting to the, like top of a political party or whatever like Mark really? yeah Mark Marks Marks, yeah seems like a pretty reasonable guy was it just me or did he support Russia's argument about NATO being a threat for Russia if Ukraine joined no I think he was just saying that it would agitate Russia his argument wasn't that like um his argument was like Ukraine joining Russia doing nuclear rearmament whatever um. Or reconquering like the Crimea region or like the Donbass region. He wasn't saying they were bad or wrong or Russia would be threatened. Just that like Russia needs to hold on to something after all this, you know? Unfortunately, that's probably true. I don't know if they need to maintain the Donbass region, but they have to maintain Crimea. I would actually, I I think I would actually oppose Ukraine uh, reconquering Crimea. Um, because the Crimean region was always like the most pro-Russian region of Ukraine. Not to say the annexation was correct; it wasn't. But like in terms of like the logistics of that, I feel like it would be an optics nightmare after the um after the war is over as well. Um, because they're like Crimea has a ton of pro-Russian people, and there would be like constant like protests and fighting and agitation. And I think it would it would make Ukraine come across as a lot more um. Uh, a lot more aggressive. It'd be, like, more of a mess than is needed, if that makes any sense. Um, I feel like- I feel like reclaiming the Donbass region could be defended, but I don't know about maybe Crimea. Maybe they could just open up, like, trade corridors with Crimea so they could get, like, water and stuff, and it wouldn't be as much of an issue. Yeah, I I don't know. Ukraine just take the L? No, 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 no. I'm not saying just take the L. I'm only saying that, like, for Ukraine, it could end up being, like, a miserable affair. Uh, uh like not worth it for them morally ukraine has a right to Crimea they would be there it's not reconquering it's reclaiming their land it's just like in the long term I feel like that would just just cause so many issues. Um the Donbass region I think I support uh the the independent Luhansk and you know uh, uh Donetsk territories yeah yeah um What are your thoughts on the future of the nuclear non-proliferation movement? Is it dead? No, I think right now, don't we have fewer nuclear warheads than we have, like, in a long time? Like, we de-armed a lot after the Cold War, didn't we? Right now, I'm pretty sure that a fourth of America's nuclear stockpile is up for um, dismantling at the moment. Because, of course, dismantling a nuclear warhead is uh, tricky business. You know, 80% less? 80%? Wow. Um, Yeah, and, and we're still decommissioning, you know? and like let's let's be real okay i'm pretty sure that like most of russia's nuclear capabilities are probably just on paper as well right like they have those dollar store nuclear warheads you know they have a, they have like radion they've gathered from a bunch of like um fire alarms they've scraped together and they have it inside of like a centrifuge with a grenade taped inside of it and they have that on a bottle rocket and that's just it's, they call it a dirty bomb um <laughs> it's, 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 uh sorry. Doubt they maintain them. Yeah, well, it's it's expensive to maintain those um those those facilities. Also, I don't actually know what's more expensive. I'm pretty sure that ICBMs are more expensive than the warheads on them, right? Like, if you have the facilities to enrich uranium, I'm pretty sure that like once you have that infrastructure set up, the cost of an ICBM is far greater than the cost of a, a new nuclear warhead. So I think they have more warheads than they have ICBMs, you know. So the total number of warheads, are is, it's not the same as the number that they could actually launch. It's like how uh, North Korea is bragging right now because they have an ICBM, even though they've had warheads for a while. And again, this is probably a dollar store ICBM. I sincerely doubt it's real. I do not think it actually has the, what did it say, 8,000 kilometer range that it claimed to have. I do not believe that for a fucking moment. I do not think. There is any chance that North Korea is capable of manufacturing any such thing? Um, what if they strap a warhead to a Soyuz? Dude, what if they just go with a briefcase nuke, okay? Just just have a person fly over, you know, whatever. I attended a lecture about nuclear weapons. The actual warheads are theoretically designed to last 80 to 90 years. The mechanical components last about 20. Isn't there a part of modern nuclear warheads that degrades after like 5 to 10 years? It's some chemical that assists in the... Not chemical, it's the... What, what is it? Is it the... Tritium. That's it. Tritium. It sounds like a Star Trek element, but yeah, it's it, apparently that degrades like really, really quickly. Oh, wow. Look at this. I didn't realize that it had been so, uh, that we, we decommissioned so much after the cold war. Look at that. Um, blue is us, uh, uh, red is Russia and all the rest of those slivers on top are, um, China, France, the UK, Pakistan, India, Israel, South, uh, South Africa, North Korea. I did not actually know that South Africa was a nuclear power. I probably should have known that. That's my bad, I guess. Um, okay, we can see what, what it's at today. Um, uh, a little less than 10K right now. China has 350. France has 290. Um, oh, South Africa zero. Okay, they gave up their nukes. Okay, never mind. When did they have them? Oh, they had them up until... uh oh, okay, the Cold War ended. All right. Um, they're one of the few to denuclearize voluntarily. That is so cool. Why can't we all be like that? I feel like the, the, the countries that I'm most worried about right now are India and Pakistan, right? Because like Russia and the U S have decommissioned their nuclear stockpiles, you know, um, Russia and Pakistan are the ones... Sorry, not Russia. India and Pakistan are the ones that have had their number going up. They didn't want a black nation having nukes. It was racism. Was it, like, explicitly that? Oh, God, was that when apartheid ended? Wait, literally? Was it literally, like, we don't want black people having nukes? Oh, my God. They didn't even know about Obama. Okay, never mind. Not based. Jesus Christ. Why are humans so fucking evil? Jesus Christ. Um, yeah, anyway, I guess I'm more worried about um, India and Pakistan. Because cause their numbers have gone up. Like, look, back in 2000, they both had like 15. And now, 20 years later, they both have uh, 150. And it's only gone up since then, you know? Like, they're making like 5 to 10 more every year. That's probably not good. China only has 300-ish? Yeah, well, you know. I was being serious about what I was saying with that guy, though. I really, really feel like what we're seeing in Ukraine right now is evidence that nobody needs any nukes to meaningfully defend themselves against invasion, especially not if you're a large country like China or whatever else, right? Like, I'm telling you, even if you took all the nukes off the table, and all military alliances, like we're not getting backed up by any of the rest of NATO or whatever, and it was like China, Russia, India, like like all of them, whatever, just like every major non-NATO country, united to attack the United States and to invade and conquer our territory, I'm pretty sure that with no nukes on the table, we would win, like, easily, like, like, I wonder if they would even make it past, like, a hundred kilometers of the coast. Like, they would have some landings and just get annihilated. You know? Like, this isn't some, like, ooh-rah shit. It's like, keep in mind, Ukraine's military is way weaker than Russia's, even with Russia having all of its, like, logistical difficulties, right? Um, And in spite of that, like, a lot of, just right now, so much of this is weighted towards the invaded person over the invader, okay? Think about it, all right? A tank costs millions and millions of dollars, but it can be disabled with a $100,000 missile, or with an IED, if you're good enough. Like, um, deploying soldiers around the world, do you know how much it would cost to arm a soldier from China and send them over to America? Like, that's a very expensive... Like, to give them all the equipment they need for, like, a round-the-world occupation? Like, that's a really, ex- like, incredibly expensive. Do you know how much the bullet in their head would cost? Like, right now at current market rates, like, 33 cents, okay? um, it, it, the The issue is, like, right now it just seems like occupying, invading, like, a large... Yeah, I don't know. No, I'm not saying that's the point of nukes. I'm just, I'm only saying that, like, I I, I, I feel like um, war has always been very expensive. This is nothing new. Do not mistake Russian debacle for state of affairs in all militaries. No, 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 no. Trust me, okay? Russia's military is uniquely incompetent. But, like, look at America. Like, even America spent a bajillion dollars occupying fucking Afghanistan. Afghanistan. We have the strongest military on Earth, and Afghanistan is... To put it lightly, not exactly a you know a, a fortress of high tech defensive fortifications, you know, um, and we still spend a ton of money like just holding that territory, like like ridiculous amount. No other country could afford that, you know, like like just a ridiculous amount of money. Uh, the the only point I'm the only point that I'm getting at here is just that I I I feel like. Ideally, like ideally in, 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 in a futuristic world that is better than this one, you know, I feel like trade interdependence and uh, existing conventional military equipment is sufficient to manage world defense, you know, like to, to keep ourselves safe, to keep Europe safe, to ideally facilitate the safety of other countries around the world against unjust invasions. Not that America hasn't done its fair share of unjust invasions, you know.